We're looking at Daniel chapter 8, which God speaks to us. Uh, let's, let's ask him to be at work. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak these words to us by your Spirit. Uh, please do work through him. Uh, please do help us to see what you show us. Uh, please do uh, tune and change our yeah, heads and hearts and thus our lives uh, while we await the glorious day. In the Lord Jesus, Amen. I don't know if you've heard, but the forecast for summer is appalling. Uh, rain, a lot of it, uh, like the last two years. I heard the news and immediately thought of people who have been flooded in the last two years. I can only imagine what it's like for them to hear the news that this year there's probably going to be rain like last year. Uh, Some are only beginning to put their lives uh, back together after losing everything. Others are still struggling. What must it be like to hear that there might be more? So let that thought sit for a moment. I think it will help you understand why Daniel is appalled at the news that more will come. Not more rain, but more cruelty and persecution, more deaths of God's precious people, more desecration of God's sanctuary temple, worse disruption of the sacrifice that brings forgiveness. In verse 27 he says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now he has some understanding, we'll hear it explained to him, but he doesn't understand. He is appalled. He survived the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem, which means he watched people die, God's people. He heard about the temple's destruction. He knows it's in ruins. This vision appalled him because he's thinking more of this. He writes for men, women, and children uh, who live under oppressive overlords. They'd seen Babylon fall to the Medes and Persians. It's better now, but by which I mean not as brutally bad. But they're hearing news in this chapter that it's going to get worse. Lots worse. And they're not bystanders. Daniel and his readers see this vision as victims, not victors. Babylonian overlords in their past, Medo-Persian overlords in their present, Greek overlords and persecutors in their future, and all that before the fourth beast comes. Yes, there's a bigger picture. God rules now and always. The Son of Man given his everlasting kingdom. Uh, God's precious people enjoying their eternal kingdom. The Son of Man's victory shared with his people. But chapter 8 shows us part of the bigger picture. It doesn't get to the glorious end. Now, within this chapter, Daniel's told a few times that it's a vision of the end. 
Verse 17, for the time of the end. Verse 19 uh, uh, points to the appointed time of the end. Uh, Verse 26, for many, many days from now. Now, it's natural for us to hear the end and look out in front of us in time, to the end beyond us. But remember the four metal image in the dream, the four beast vision uh, from chapter 7? Babylon first, then means Medes and Persians second, Greece next, and something worse beyond that. The end spoken about here is more like the end of Ipswich is more like the end of Ipswich Road than the end of Annerley Road. Okay, so drive up the road, get to the end of Annerley Road, and it just stops. Get to the end of Ipswich Road, and really find yourself on Main Street. Get to the end of Main Street, well, it becomes Bradford Highway, which uh, gets you across the Story Bridge, which becomes Gipps Street, Barry Parade, and somewhere out there there's an end. This vision is about the end of a phase not the end of all things. It's about the end of a phase of God's disciplining judgments on God's people. It's not the end of all things. And this vision confronts us with the reality and the horror of life in a fallen world. Life where our experience uh, may be that bad is followed by worse and worse is followed by something worse. Life lived before the end. Life lived waiting. Final thing by way of orientation is that this vision is and and the explanation are both given by God. So Daniel sees the vision. Uh, He hears angels discussing it. And then still in the vision, God tells the angel Gabriel to explain the vision to Daniel. And Gabriel explains it. So as we move through the bits of the vision that we just read, I'm going to refer ahead and uh, point you to the bits of the vision where the vision, sorry, the bits beyond the end of the vision where the vision is discussed and where the vision is explained. So verses 1 and 2. Uh, They tell tell us that Daniel saw the vision from Susa before Babylon fell. Uh, So it's two years after Daniel saw chapter 7. It's the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, it says, when he was still king of Babylon, 550 BC, uh, for those who like numbers. It's the year that Cyrus merged the Medes and the Persians. Um, So they were already well and truly on the rise. So this map is actually one that represents the spread of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, So color added to color added to color. At the time of of Daniel's vision, they ruled the dark green section uh, down the bottom, towards the bottom right, uh, and the purple parts of the map. Uh, Babylon ruled that light green area across through to Israel and a fair chunk of it uh, down in, into Egypt as well. But by the time, that was when Daniel saw the vision. By the time Daniel wrote, the, ba- Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, including Israel, had fallen to the Medes and Persians. Which means it's dark green, purple, and light green were all under Medo-Persian rule. But Daniel's telling us what God showed before that fall. Uh, it's history before the facts. Uh, his first readers knew this as part of their recent history, that Babylon had fallen. Uh, but they didn't see, live to see Greece rise more than 200 years later. But they saw it coming. Because God, in this vision, told them history before it happened. History before the fact. 
Because it's so specific in this vision, uh, because it just keeps giving us the details, uh, I'm going to jump ahead and just keep pointing you back uh, to how the connections draw. So Daniel saw it from Susa, uh, a city, the city down there in the west and south of Babylon. You can see this fairly close uh, to the edge of what Babylon ruled at the time, uh, which doesn't mean this fairly close to border control, you know, sort of passports being checked. It means it's fairly close to where they're holding off their enemies, fighting to keep them at bay. Daniel sees. Uh, he sees the ram from there. Uh, I, I take it he's looking east across the canal. Uh, sorry, east across the canal. Uh, and... Uh, He says, verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Glance down to verse 20, that's where the angel explains. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. The higher horn probably represents the fact that Persia uh, was the greater power in the combined kingdom. But both horns are dangerous. This is no fluffy petting zoo shape. Not at all. This is the alpha male of the flock. It's aggressively defending its territory. It's aggressively expanding its territory westward straight through Babylon's territory, northward into Turkey, southward through Israel into Egypt. Seen as victim, not victor, it's frightening to hear no beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power. There is no safety from this kingdom. Here is a kingdom which knows nothing but victory. But you're not part of it. It's your overlord. It does what it pleases against you. It is a great and powerful, influential and proud. While Daniel looks at the ram that represents Midian and Persia, verse 5, Behold a male goat. Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. It came to the ram with the two horns which it had been, sorry, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Verse 21, the angel explains, The goat is the king of grace. The great horn between his eyes is the first king. So here we have the irresistible ram resisted by a male goat. It comes out of Greece in the west. The empire's war machine moves so quickly its feet don't touch the ground. Daniel sees from Susa uh, as the, the male goat comes and clashes with the ram and breaks its horn and casts it down and tramples on it. Media and Persia now experience what it is like to have no one to rescue. 
mentions Greece's first king. That's Alexander the Great. You may have heard of him. Uh, His empire expanded with spectacular speed. An unstoppable male male goat with a single horn is a great picture uh, of just how quickly he took territory. Uh, So is a leopard with four wings, so good choice in chapter 7 as well. Uh, Greece, led by Alexander the Great, came out of the West pursuing the Persian army. And in just three years... Grace took territory that the vast empire had held for 200 years. Persia was defenseless victim ram. Grace, the all-conquering, victorious male goat. Verse 8, then the uh, goat became exceedingly great. Uh, but But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it came up, four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven, four directions, north, south, east, west. The angel explains in verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So Alexander ruled, he ruled this and more. Uh, Alexander ruled a territory stretching from Greece and and Egypt uh, in the west, all the way through what Babylon had held and way up north of what Babylon held and well down in towards, towards India. Alexander was the single great, single horn on the male goat, but he was broken. He died. And after his death, the kingdom divided into four. Uh, each kingdom uh, represented uh, in division by a horn uh, growing up in you know, different directions on the, on the male goats. That's what was coming. That's what Daniel saw coming. None of it was good news for Daniel and his first hearers. They heard it centuries before, two centuries before Greece rose to power, and they heard and saw as victims, not victors. It's news of a change of overlord. It's not news of getting out from under their role. Just changing who oppresses. It doesn't get better, verse 9. The little horn. Verse 9, out of one of the four lesser horns I came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and towards the glorious land. The angel explains in verse 23, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressor, transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. This little horn is a little king of a, a smaller part of the Greek empire. But he's the one who's drawn in detail. He gets heaps more attention than Alexander the Great. The lesser king of a lesser kingdom gets greater attention. More words to describe him in the vision. Uh, he's the one who gets discussed by the angels. Uh, and then the description uh, that Gabriel gives uh, gets way more length. The man in history is Antiochus uh, IV, the Seleucid king, uh, which means the um, Israel sort of area down into Egypt. He liked people to call him Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus, God manifest. It's a pretty ridiculous title for a relatively minor king. Um, I guess some other people thought the same because some dared to call him, call him Antiochus Ep- Epimenes. 
Antiochus the madman. Uh, I'm guessing they didn't call him that to his face, just judging by the things I've read about him. But why does God show us more about this man, this king? Why does Daniel slow down and show us the detail? It's because of the impact this ruler had on God's precious people. Verse 9, the horn that represents him, it grows towards the glorious lands. It's the fact that it, it's impacting the promised land. It's towards God's precious people. Towards God's temple. Verse 10, the horn uh, grows towards the promised land. Uh, it, it, it grows great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down and the ground to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, the prince of the army, the prince of the, the heavenly army. The angel explains in verses 24 and 25, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall, shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints, God's precious people. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. Even rising up against God himself. Insignificant in a global history compared to Alexander the Great. Antiochus is enormously significant as the king who takes aim specifically at God's people, at God himself. Devious and deceptive, destroying not just places but people, God's precious people. He's a man drunk with power who directed his power against God's people in persecuting them, against God himself in blaspheming him. And he goes further, halfway through verse 11, uh, talks about God, the prince of the army, of the army host. The regular burnt offerings have been taken away from him, God, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Then verse 12 is about the horn, it. And a host army uh, will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it, the horn, the little horn will be thrown, will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Now, Daniel wrote this while the Jerusalem temple lay in ruins. But even when it wasn't much more than rubble, sacrifice was offered at the temple site. Now Daniel is saying that even that sacrifice will be stopped. This is the most shocking part of the vision for the angels and for Daniel. God's people trampled, the temple in ruins, sacrifices stopped, unspeakably appalling. The temple was the defining reality uh, for Israelites. God dwelt there with them. They expressed relationship with him there. They knew God, God is in heaven, but they prayed to him in heaven by facing his temple. They brought sacrifices of thanks and praise. 
It's the only place where the burnt offerings were offered. The burnt offerings whose shed blood atoned and paid for their sin and rebellion and brought forgiveness. So here in this vision, the Judeans who returned to Jerusalem came back and got permission to rebuild the temple. They were hopeful and expectant. But just as they return and plans to rebuild are beginning, Daniel's vision of the end goes public. The sacrifices that bring forgiveness will be stopped. In the vision, verse 13, Daniel hears angels discussing all that. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? How long? How long will the sacrifice for sin be stopped? How long desolation made by transgression? How long temple sanctuary trampled in ruins? The other angel says, verse 14, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And halfway through verse 25, the angel explains, the king the little horn points to shall be broken, but by no human hands. So ask, how long? How long will the blasphemous king last? It'll last the number of days that God in heaven allows him to live. Not a day longer. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Yep, two centuries. How long will the sanctuary temple lie desolate and the sacrifices stopped? 2,300 evenings and mornings. Exactly the number of days that God in heaven allows it to be stopped. And Tiger's Epiphanes did march proudly uh, onto the stage of history. Uh, he attacked Jerusalem. Uh, he slaughtered her people. He stole temple treasures. He threw the Torah, the truth, to the ground. Uh, he banned all Jewish rites. Uh, he commanded uh, Jews to sacrifice pigs to other gods. He dedicated the Jerusalem temple, the Lord's temple, uh, to Zeus. He built an altar to Zeus in the place where the altar of burnt offerings had stood previously. It was a horrendous time for God's people. We'll see more of it as we read on in Daniel. Daniel was appalled by this vision. How can hearing this help us? Well, some people read the vision and the explanation and think, well, it can't be true prediction. (laughs) They say it's not events in history told before the fact. It can't be because it's impossible to say what will happen 350 years in the future with the level of detail that Daniel gives here. They say it must be prophecy after the fact. Someone writing after what these things happened as if they were Daniel. They understand what is claiming, but they say, well, it's impossible. It can't be done. But Daniel has given us good reasons, good reasons to recognize that it is absolutely possible. 
He's saying the same God who acted in history, giving Jerusalem to Babylon, rescuing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames, humbling Nebuchadnezzar, judging Belshazzar, giving Babylon to the Medes and Persians, rescuing Daniel from the lions, that same God is always working his plans and purposes. When he chooses, he can choose to speak about what he will do 350 years from now. So he can can choose to speak about what he will do 350 years into the future as easily as we can say what we'll do at 3 o'clock this afternoon. The difference is we can say what we'll do, but something could change so that we can't do it. Nothing can stop God's plan. Nothing can stop God's plan. God rules now and always. God brings about his plans, his purposes. For the first readers and for us, that's a comfort. To know who our God is. That he is the one living and true, loving and holy, actually all-powerful God. Whatever power seems to be the superpower, Medes, Persians, Greeks, Romans, British, Americans, Russians, countries or corporations, people with vast wealth or people with incredible influence. No matter who is focusing their power against God and against his people, God is in control. God rules now and always. Which means that Evil triumphs, but evil never wins. Actually, evil keeps triumphing. In generation after generation after generation, evil keeps triumphing. One of the ways that Daniel shows us uh, that uh, is these little horns. A little horn on the fourth beast in chapter 7 triumphs for a time. This little horn on the alternative picture of the third beast triumphed for a time. Same thing, different based. Daniel is showing us what's seen over and over and over and over in history. A ruthless ruler stops at nothing in order to achieve his ambitions. He pits himself against God and against God's people. Through history, for as long as we wait, For Christ to return, there have been and there will be many antichrists. Dreadful, damaging, destructive against God's people, determined to dishonor God's good name. They triumph. It's appalling. We should not take it in our stride as normal, therefore okay. It's not okay that God's people should be pressured to turn from Christ. It's not okay that our Father and our Savior should be triumphs. Sorry, our Father and our Savior should be dishonored as evil triumphs. But we also need to be clear that evil never wins. At all times and in all places, God is in control. We've seen in this chapter, God is the one who gave the host army over to the little horn. 
God gave the sanctuary uh, to the little horn. He limited its days. It fell by his hand. We mustn't be surprised and we mustn't be shaken. New opposition follows old opposition. Over and over and over. And God is constantly in control. Evil triumphs, but evil never wins. We can know God's comfort and we can wait confidently. When evil triumphs against us, uh, we can be comforted and live with the confidence that we are under our loving Father's care, even in the midst of it. His hand on us may be heavy, but it is his hand. Evil triumphs, but the one kingdom which will stand eternally is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Daniel saw this vision uh, as a man who had survived a flood of Babylonian warriors coming down through Judah and Jerusalem. He wrote as a man who had survived a flood of uh, Medo-Persian warriors surging through Babylon and into Judah and Jerusalem. It crushed him to see a future flood of oppressors coming and with them worse persecution and oppression than anything he had faced. It came as God said. People perished, the temple desecrated, the sacrifice for forgiveness stopped. Daniel saw and wrote this with darker days ahead before one like a son of man would come and take his throne with the ancient of days. We read it looking back. We read it as we read it. The glorious son of man has already come to his throne. The gospels show it to us. The gospel tells us that Jesus, the son of man, has come to his throne. The Son of Man suffered and was rejected, killed and rose. He gave his life as a ransom. He rose from death and sits at his Father's right hand now in glory. He has received the eternal kingdom, which can never be destroyed. He came to his throne via the cross, where he offered up himself as the sacrifice that brings forgiveness. Offered up once and for all, he is seated in heaven. He is seated in heaven as the constant reminder that the perfect sacrifice for forgiveness has already been offered and accepted. He is there, and while he is there, we who trust him are welcome. And he is there eternally. And there is a heavenly sanctuary temple where we already meet with God our Father and will one day stand. The sacrifice offered for us and our place of meeting with God cannot be desecrated or destroyed. Because Christ offered up himself once for all time and no human ruler or supernatural power can storm the heavenly temple We get to be comforted. We get to live with a confidence that comes from knowing him. While we wait, 
evil triumphs but never wins. God rules now and always. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the comfort of knowing uh, your, your rule, your control of all things. That even over things that we would never choose, you rule. Thank you that while evil uh, triumphs, evil never wins. You work out your good plans and your good purposes. Thank you for the assurance and confidence and comfort of knowing that uh, our, this sacrifice uh, for our sins has been paid once and for all. That Jesus is at your right hand. That he welcomes all who come to him. Father, help us to live with those realities and to share the goodness of it. And Father, please give uh, from among our friends and family uh, more and more men, women and kids. Please give them to your son that they'd come to him too. In Jesus' name, amen.